Are you one of those people that sees life as one big experiment? How does that work? What happens if we do this? What's that over there? Why did that happen? Yeah, me too. This is a podcast about being curious, being willing to give things a try and not settling for the status quo. Sometimes we fly and sometimes we fall, but there's always a lesson to be learned and a good story to tell. So join me, Nathie Gaffney, and my guests as we share stories of how we've turned fuck-ups into features. Life is short, people. I figure, let's just suck it and see. to seriously crash your social capital (sighs) forget someone's name and not just anyone's name but forget someone's name whose name you really really ought to remember this happened to me recently and it really reminded me that I need to do something about how I go about remembering people's names maybe some of this will help you too so a couple of months ago over Christmas uh, we were all a little bit excited to be out of lockdown and able to go out to lunch and so I was I was with a bunch of my girlfriends out for lunch it was already getting a little bit loud and boozy and raucous and we had a girlfriend in town from London and we're all getting very excited and very champagned up And out of the corner of my eye, this woman walks across um, behind. And and I looked at her and we locked eyes and we both went, ah, oh, my God, and got up and it was hugs. And it was like, oh, my God, how are you? And I was literally, and this is a woman I've worked with. I met her through work. Uh, We have socialised. We follow each other on social media. We comment on each other's holidays and stuff. I know this woman. I really like her. Her name is Lara. But could I remember her name in that minute? I seriously had the biggest fucking brain fart and it just wasn't coming to me. And I just kept thinking to myself, if I just keep the conversation going, surely her name is going to pop somewhere. It's in an archive. It's It's hiding under a fucking rock somewhere in my brain. And if I just keep the conversation going... Any moment now, I'm going to kick the rock over and there is going to be her name. And it didn't fucking happen. And I literally had to stop and say, I have had a complete mental blank and I've completely forgotten your name. It was was seriously so embarrassing. So, so embarrassing. And I actually don't know. I think Lara's a, a pretty decent chick and I think she'll get it. But there are some people who would never forgive that. Um, And I, yes, I actually don't know whether I've incurred any any no votes from that one. And uh, and I still think about it clearly because I'm talking about it on the podcast. So we've all done this, haven't we? We've all had those moments. You're talking to someone either at a work function or at the office or at a party, social function. And someone comes up to you and you know them, but you can't fucking remember their name. And the person that you're talking to, well, both parties 
are standing there waiting for you to introduce them. And the reason you're not introducing them is because you can't remember one of the names and it gets really, really embarrassing. So I thought that this happens enough, even when people are good at names. We do, we do forget sometimes. So uh, I thought that we might spend a little bit of time uncovering and exploring, exploring some hacks and techniques to help you remember names because as I did a little digging beneath the surface, what I did discover was that um, we aren't bad at remembering names. We just haven't found the right technique. So what can science tell us? So there's a guy called Jim Quick, K-W-I-K, who's a brain coach. Yep, he is a brain coach. And he says that there is no such thing as a good or a bad memory. There's just trained memory and an untrained memory. So basically what it means is about 30% of your memory capacity is genetic. So the other two thirds is trainable. So what he says is memory isn't something that you have. It's something that you do. So if you are chronically forgetful when it comes to names, there's usually uh, a few different things going on and you might, you might not like what I uncovered. So here's the thing. Most people uh, just aren't listening. Yeah. If you can't remember names, you might be thinking of what you're going to ask this person, or you might be thinking of what you want to drink at the bar, or you might be thinking of something that you left off your shopping list. But most people, when they lose that name, particularly after they've just met someone, it's just like, hello, this is Brian. And 30 seconds later, you have literally forgotten the name. It's because you weren't focused on it. Yeah. So being present and actually listening while not having your brain full of other shit is the first step to actually being able to remember names. So the other thing is know your motivation. That's, uh, that's what, uh, that's what old Mr. Quick says. He says, why is it important that you take on board this person's name and remember it? You know, and he says one little motivator or a little trick is to go, imagine that the next person that you meet has a hundred thousand dollars to give you and all you have to do to get it is to remember their name do you think he'd be able to remember some fucker's name if they were going to give you a hundred thousand dollars just for remembering their name i reckon you might be able to so there you go imagine imagine that this person has got a hundred thousand dollars for you in their back pocket all you got to do is remember their name okay so there you go motivation can be a big ticker. But what are some other things that you can do? So I have to say my favorite one and the one that has become my name remembering device of choice is quite simply repeating it. Okay. So you meet Stuart. Hello, Stuart. Nice to meet you. Uh, and then within the first or first two or three sentences or interactions, you find an opportunity to use the name again. So tell me, Stuart, you know, why is it that you have such long ear hair? I don't know. It's, uh, it's very interesting. Now, if, uh, 
and then of course when you say goodbye to the person it's saying lovely to meet you Stuart clip those ear hairs it was great to meet you okay now if you're not a person who uh can remember names just by repeat, repeat, repeat. And and obviously you don't want to overdo the name. You don't want to say, and Stuart, it's been great meeting you. And Stuart, tell me about a time when Stuart, because then that just might come off like you've got some sort of uh, neurological name tick disorder, something like that. But three or four times in that first encounter that you have with that person, that will help. Now, if just repeat, repeat, repeat doesn't work for you, then you can also try another version of that. And what I actually did there was I associated with Stuart something that was visual about him. Now, in the instance of Stuart, he had long hairs growing out of his ear. I wouldn't necessarily say that to him, but it might be something that I always remember. And then when I see this hairy ear guy coming towards me I'll go uh -huh, I remember him that's Stuart with the hairy ears so and, and there's a reason why and not just because of the horrificness of Stuart's hairy ears but because we are essentially visual characters we're, we're visual people uh, so for example let me let me explain if you go to someone's house and you because this is just an exercise in memory if you go to someone's house and you leave your coat or your handbag on a chair when you go back at the end of the night to retrieve your coat or your handbag, you're not necessarily thinking of the coat or the handbag. You're actually going back to the place where you left it. So that is the chair. So we are visual people. So if you can associate a name with a visual reference on that person, like that person's ears or the person's shoes or the person's nose or the person's shoulders or whatever it is, it can help connect you to the name because your brain associates the name with the um, with the physical um, characteristic that you visually recall. So that's another one. Of course, you may or may not have heard of mnemonics, okay? That's another way. So that's a play on words. If you think about, you know, all the all the Hollywood people who've been called, you know, J-Lo and J-Law and all of that sort of stuff, that's just quite simply a, mnemon a mnemonic. And that is a, a sound device and it can be a rhyme, it can be onomatopoeia, it can be an acronym, it doesn't really matter, but it's a play on words, it's a, it's a word sound device that helps connect your neural pathways, the way um, you use to retrieve the name of that person. So that's all it is. Think of it like it's a memory hook. And we each have though we each have different hooks in different parts of our brain. So you've got to find the one that you remember. Uh, one that I actually really like, and it's not a memory device, but it is a pretty cool social device, is if you've particularly when you're introducing people. So you're chatting away and someone comes up and you can't remember the name and you say, you say, uh, sorry, what's your name again? And the person might say, Bruce. And it's like, no, 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 not, not Bruce. I know your name's Bruce, your last name. And they go, oh, Applegate. And you go, oh, that's right, Bruce Applegate. I remembered you had a double, double banger last name. That's right, yeah, oh, Bruce. This is Emily, Emily, this is Bruce. So what you've done is you've got their first name and you've got their second name, two for the price of one. So I kind of love that. And, you know, if all else fails, 
just say, darling, sweetie, it's so good to see you. Haven't seen you for such a long time. And then as soon as they turn their back, say to anyone who looks like they've got a clue, please, for God's sake, tell me what that person's name is. Uh, because otherwise I'm going to have to die of embarrassment. Just like I did with Lara, because there was nobody else around to remind me of her name. Lara, you know, I love you long time. Well, lovelies, that's it for another episode of Suck It and See, the podcast. If you're enjoying hanging out with me and my guests on the podcast, there's a couple of ways that you could support me, which will cost you nothing except a little bit of your time. If you haven't connected me with me on any of my socials, you can follow the Facebook group, Suck It and See Insiders on Facebook, and also connect with me and follow on Instagram. Uh, the profile is nathy.gaffney. Uh, another way that you could really support the podcast is by leaving a rating and a review. Uh, stars, of course, you can leave anything up to five. Um, I typically find it's great just to tap that little star on the far right hand corner. But if you're not feeling it, then please do not just uh, not just tap the stars, but also leave me some words. Let me know what you think. Let me know and let other listeners know what they're likely to get out of by, uh, by tuning into the Suck It and See podcast. So again, as always, uh, please approach life with a sense of uh, hope, humor and sass. Uh, live life with curiosity. As my grandma Eileen said, you're a long time looking at the lid. So uh, don't miss opportunities. All right, lovelies, I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. This time 20 years ago, I was 28 hours into a 30-hour labour. I had had a blood pressure drop and so they'd had to lie me down and that slowed the labour down. And, and all I can remember in the haze is my obstetrician leaving in one set of clothes and coming back hours later in a different set of clothes. Uh, it felt like he went to the ballet at one point. He was in a suit and tie and then it looked like he was in golfing gear and he just kept popping back in and seeing how far along I was. At that time, I was 38 years old and I really thought because of how long it was taking, at any minute now, he was going to come in and say, look, sorry, this has gone on too long. We need to, you need to have a cesarean. Anyway, at one point, he realised that I was completely exhausted and he said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put you to sleep. And so because I was lying down, they actually gave me uh, a sedative and knocked me out for a couple of hours. And then when I came to, uh, I was dilated. And I think that was like only an hour or something before you were actually delivered. And I woke up and he went, right, we're ready to go. Are you ready to push? And I pushed and fucking pushed and pushed and still you wouldn't come out. You were just having a lovely time in there. You just didn't want to deal with the world, I think. So in the end, uh, he had to put on the rubber gloves and get the suction cap out and out you came at 6.15pm 6, 6, on the 12th of March 2002. 
And the first thing I did was called for a beer. I had worked really fucking hard to get you out. And uh, so, yeah, I had a cold beer in the bed in the delivery suite. And the anaesthetist said, he said, all the years I have been doing this job, he said, I have never seen a mother chug down a beer after giving birth. So, uh, yeah, so that was a pretty interesting, interesting thing. I was pretty exhausted after that ordeal. And uh, when finally, you know, I, I don't know, it must have been some 48 hours later, it felt like the first time I found myself really, truly alone with you and you were in the little um, maternity ward um, bassinets on the trolleys that, that they give you. They're like clear. They're, it's basically a clear perspective box on a trolley so I was lying in the bed and I could see you through the perspex and I was looking at you and you were just settled there and lying there sleeping and the enormity of not just what I'd done but also what I'd taken on and the exhaustion and the fatigue and the thrill and the elation and all of that sort of stuff just became too much to bear. And I got myself out of bed and I dragged a chair up to your trolley and I just looked at you through the glass and I put my head on the perspex and looked at you and, and I just wept. I wept from the exhaustion and I wept from the relief that you were, that you were here and that you were healthy and that you were mine and that you were loved. And I, I wept because I kind of, I didn't know what to do. I felt so wholly unprepared for what I imagined was ahead of me, being a mum. And, and, I, and I knew that I couldn't do a half-assed job, I knew that I didn't want to fuck it up, that I wasn't going to fuck it up, but I wasn't sure I could do it. This time 20 years ago, I was 28 hours into a 30-hour labour. I had had a blood pressure drop and so they'd had to lie me down and that slowed the labour down and and all I can remember in the haze is my obstetrician leaving in one set of clothes and coming back hours later in a different set of clothes. Uh, it felt like he went to the ballet at one point, he was in a suit and tie and then it looked like he was in golfing gear and he just kept popping back in and seeing how far along I was. At that time I was 38 years old and I really thought because of how long it was taking at any minute now he was going to come in and say look sorry this has gone on too long we need to you need to have a cesarean anyway at one point he realized that I was completely exhausted and he said you know what we're going to do we're going to put you to sleep 
And so because I was lying down, they actually gave me uh, a sedative and knocked me out for a couple of hours. And then when I came to, uh, I was dilated. And I think that was like only an hour or something before you were actually delivered. And I woke up and he went, right, we're ready to go. Are you ready to push? And I pushed and fucking pushed and pushed and still you wouldn't come out. You were just having a lovely time in there. You just didn't want to deal with the world, I think. So in the end, uh, he had to put on the rubber gloves and get the suction cap out and out you came at 6.15pm on the 12th of March, 2002. And... The first thing I did was called for a beer. I had worked really fucking hard to get you out. And uh, so, yeah, I had a cold beer in the bed in the delivery suite. And the anaesthetist said, he said, all the years I have been doing this job, he said, I have never seen a mother chug down a beer after giving birth. So, uh, yeah, so that was a pretty interesting, interesting thing. I was pretty exhausted after that ordeal. And uh, when finally, you know, I, I don't know, it must have been some 48 hours later, it felt like the first time I found myself really, truly alone with you. And you were in the little um, maternity ward um, bassinets on the trolleys that, that they give you. They're like clear. They're, it's basically a clear perspex box on a trolley. So I was lying in the bed and I could see you through the perspex. And I was looking at you and you were just settled there and lying there sleeping. And the enormity of not just what I'd done but also what I'd taken on and the exhaustion and the fatigue and the thrill and the elation and all of that sort of stuff just became too much to bear and I got myself out of bed and I dragged a chair up to your trolley and I just looked at you through the glass and I put my head on the perspex and looked at you and and I just wept. I wept from the exhaustion and I wept from the relief that you were that you were here and that you were healthy and that you were mine and that you were loved. And I I wept because I kind of I didn't know what to do. I felt so wholly unprepared for what I imagined was ahead of me being a mum and and I and I knew that I couldn't do a half-assed job I knew that I didn't want to fuck it up that I wasn't going to fuck it up but I wasn't sure I could do it this time 20 years ago I was 28 hours into a 30-hour labour. I had had a blood pressure drop and so they'd had to 
limey down and that slowed the labour down and and all I can remember in the haze is my obstetrician leaving in one set of clothes and coming back hours later in a different set of clothes. Uh, it felt like he went to the ballet at one point, he was in a suit and tie and then it looked like he was in golfing gear and he just kept popping back in and seeing how far along I was. At that time I was 38 years old and I really thought because of how long it was taking, at any minute now he was going to come in and say, look, sorry, this has gone on too long. We need to, you need to have a cesarean. Anyway, at one point he realised that I was completely exhausted and he said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put you to sleep. And so because I was lying down, they actually gave me uh, a sedative and knocked me out for a couple of hours. And then when I came to, uh, I was dilated. And I think that was like only an hour or something before you were actually delivered. And I woke up and he went, right, we're ready to go. Are you ready to push? And I pushed and fucking pushed and pushed and still you wouldn't come out. You were just having a lovely time in there. You just didn't want to deal with the world, I think. So in the end, uh, he had to put on the rubber gloves and get the suction cap out and out you came at 6.15pm 6, on the 12th of March, 2002. And... The first thing I did was called for a beer. I had worked really fucking hard to get you out. And uh, so, yeah, I had a cold beer in the bed in the delivery suite. And the anaesthetist said, he said, all the years I have been doing this job, he said, I have never seen a mother chug down a beer after giving birth. So, uh, yeah, so that was a pretty interesting, interesting thing. I was pretty exhausted after that ordeal. And uh, when finally, you know, I, I don't know, it must have been some 48 hours later, it felt like the first time I found myself really, truly alone with you and you were in the little um, maternity ward um, bassinets on the trolleys that, that they give you. They're like clear. They're, it's basically a clear perspex box on a trolley. So I was lying in the bed and I could see you through the perspex. And I was looking at you and, and you were just settled there and lying there sleeping. And the enormity of not just what I'd done but also what I'd taken on and the exhaustion and the fatigue and the thrill and the elation and all of that sort of stuff just became too much to bear and I got myself out of bed and I dragged a chair up to your trolley and I just looked at you through the glass and I put my head on the perspex and looked at you and and I just wept. I wept from the exhaustion and I wept from the relief that you were that you were here and that you were healthy and that you were mine and that you were loved. And I I wept because 
I kind of, I didn't know what to do. I felt so wholly unprepared for what I imagined was ahead of me, being a mum. And and I and I knew that I couldn't do a half-assed job. I knew that I didn't want to fuck it up, that I wasn't going to fuck it up, but I wasn't sure I could do it. This time 20 years ago, I was 28 hours into a 30-hour labour. I had had a blood pressure drop and so they'd had to lie me down and that slowed the labour down. And, and all I can remember in the haze is my obstetrician leaving in one set of clothes and coming back hours later in a different set of clothes. Uh, it felt like he went to the ballet at one point, he was in a suit and tie and then it looked like he was in golfing gear and he just kept popping back in and seeing how far along I was. At that time, I was 38 years old and I really thought because of how long it was taking, at any minute now, he was going to come in and say, look, sorry, this has gone on too long. We need to, you need to have a cesarean. Anyway, at one point, he realised that I was completely exhausted and he said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put you to sleep. And so because I was lying down, they actually gave me uh, a sedative and knocked me out for a couple of hours. And then when I came to, uh, I was dilated. And I think that was like only an hour or something before you were actually delivered. And I woke up and he went, right, we're ready to go. Are you ready to push? And I pushed and fucking pushed and pushed and still you wouldn't come out. You were just having a lovely time in there. You just didn't want to deal with the world, I think. So in the end, uh, he had to put on the rubber gloves and get the suction cap out and out you came at 6.15pm 6, on the 12th of March, 2002. And... The first thing I did was called for a beer. I had worked really fucking hard to get you out. And uh, so, yeah, I had a cold beer in the bed in the delivery suite. And the anaesthetist said, he said, all the years I have been doing this job, he said, I have never seen a mother chug down a beer after giving birth. So, uh, yeah, so that was a pretty interesting, interesting thing. I was pretty exhausted after that ordeal. And uh, when finally, you know, I, I don't know, it must have been some 48 hours later, it felt like the first time I found myself really, truly alone with you and you were in the little um, maternity ward um, bassinets on the trolleys that, that they give you. They're like clear. They're, it's basically a clear perspex box on a trolley. So I was lying in the bed and I could see you through the perspex. And I was looking at you and, and you were just settled there and lying there sleeping. And the enormity of 
not just what I'd done, but also what I'd taken on and the exhaustion and the fatigue and the thrill and the elation and all of that sort of stuff just became too much to bear. And I got myself out of bed and I dragged a chair up to your trolley and I just looked at you through the glass and I put my head on the perspex and looked at you and and I just wept. I wept from the exhaustion and I wept from the relief that you were that you were here and that you were healthy and that you were mine and that you were loved. And I I wept because I kind of I didn't know what to do. I felt so wholly unprepared for what I imagined was ahead of me being a mum and and I and I knew that I couldn't do a half-assed job I knew that I didn't want to fuck it up that I wasn't going to fuck it up but I wasn't sure I could do it this time 20 years ago I was 28 hours into a 30-hour labour. I had had a blood pressure drop and so they'd had to lie me down and that slowed the labour down. And, and all I can remember in the haze is my obstetrician leaving in one set of clothes and coming back hours later in a different set of clothes. Uh, it felt like he went to the ballet at one point. He was in a suit and tie and then it looked like he was in golfing gear and he just kept popping back in and seeing how far along I was. At that time, I was 38 years old and I really thought because of how long it was taking, at any minute now, he was going to come in and say, look, sorry, this has gone on too long. We need to, you need to have a cesarean. Anyway, at one point, he realised that I was completely exhausted and he said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put you to sleep. And so because I was lying down, they actually gave me uh, a sedative and knocked me out for a couple of hours. And then when I came to, uh, I was dilated. And I think that was like only an hour or something before you were actually delivered. And I woke up and he went, right, we're ready to go. Are you ready to push? And I pushed and fucking pushed and pushed and still you wouldn't come out. You were just having a lovely time in there. You just didn't want to deal with the world, I think. So in the end, uh, he had to put on the rubber gloves and get the suction cap out and out you came at 6.15pm 6 on the 12th of March, 2002. And... The first thing I did was called for a beer. I had worked really fucking hard to get you out. And uh, so, yeah, I had a cold beer in the bed in the delivery suite. And the anaesthetist said, he said, all the years I have been doing this job, he said, I have never seen a mother chug down a beer after giving birth. So, uh, yeah, so that was a pretty interesting, interesting thing. I was pretty exhausted. 
after that ordeal. And uh, when finally, you know, I, I don't know, it must have been some 48 hours later, it felt like the first time I found myself really truly alone with you and you were in the little um, maternity ward um, bassinets on the trolleys that, that they give you. They're like clear. They're, it's basically a clear perspective box on a trolley so I was lying in the bed and I could see you through the perspex and I was looking at you and you were just settled there and lying there sleeping and the enormity of not just what I'd done but also what I'd taken on and the exhaustion and the fatigue and the thrill and the elation and all of that sort of stuff just became too much to bear. And I got myself out of bed and I dragged a chair up to your trolley and I just looked at you through the glass and I put my head on the perspex and looked at you and, and I just wept. I wept from the exhaustion and I wept from the relief that you were, that you were here and that you were healthy and that you were mine and that you were loved and i i wept because i kind of i didn't know what to do i felt so wholly unprepared for what i imagined was ahead of me being a mum and and i and i knew that i couldn't do a half-assed job i knew that I didn't want to fuck it up, that I wasn't going to fuck it up, but I wasn't sure I could do it. This time 20 years ago, I was 28 hours into a 30-hour labour. I had had a blood pressure drop and so they'd had to lie me down and that slowed the labour down and and all I can remember in the haze is my obstetrician leaving in one set of clothes and coming back hours later in a different set of clothes. Uh, it felt like he went to the ballet at one point, he was in a suit and tie and then it looked like he was in golfing gear and he just kept popping back in and seeing how far along I was. At that time I was 38 years old and I really thought because of how long it was taking, at any minute now, he was gonna come in and say, look, sorry, this has gone on too long. We need to, you need to have a cesarean. Anyway, at one point he realized that I was completely exhausted and he said, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna put you to sleep. And so, because I was lying down, they actually gave me uh, a sedative and knocked me out for a couple of hours. And then when I came to, uh, I was dilated and I think that was like only an hour or something before you were actually delivered and I woke up and he went right we're ready to go are you ready to push and I pushed and fucking pushed and pushed and still you wouldn't come out you were just having a lovely time in there you just didn't want to deal with the world I think 
So in the end, uh, he had to put on the rubber gloves and get the suction cap out and out you came at 6.15pm on the 12th of March, 2002. And... The first thing I did was called for a beer. I had worked really fucking hard to get you out. And uh, so, yeah, I had a cold beer in the bed in the delivery suite. And the anaesthetist said, he said, all the years I have been doing this job, he said, I have never seen a mother chug down a beer after giving birth. So, uh, yeah, so that was a pretty interesting, interesting thing. I was pretty exhausted after that ordeal. And uh, when finally, you know, I, I don't know, it must have been some 48 hours later, it felt like the first time I found myself really, truly alone with you and you were in the little um, maternity ward um, bassinets on the trolleys that, that they give you. They're like clear. They're, it's basically a clear perspex box on a trolley. So I was lying in the bed and I could see you through the perspex. And I was looking at you and, and you were just settled there and lying there sleeping. And the enormity of not just what I'd done but also what I'd taken on and the exhaustion and the fatigue and the thrill and the elation and all of that sort of stuff just became too much to bear and I got myself out of bed and I dragged a chair up to your trolley and I just looked at you through the glass and I put my head on the perspex and looked at you and and I just wept. I wept from the exhaustion and I wept from the relief that you were that you were here and that you were healthy and that you were mine and that you were loved. And I I wept because I kind of I didn't know what to do. I felt so wholly unprepared for what I imagined was ahead of me being a mum and and I and I knew that I couldn't do a half-assed job I knew that I didn't want to fuck it up that I wasn't going to fuck it up but I wasn't sure I could do it this time 20 years ago I was 28 hours into a 30-hour labour. I had had a blood pressure drop and so they'd had to lie me down and that slowed the labour down. And, and all I can remember in the haze is my obstetrician leaving in one set of clothes and coming back hours later in a different set of clothes. Uh, it felt like he went to the ballet at one point. He was in a suit and tie and then it looked like he was in golfing gear and he just kept popping back in and seeing how far along I was. At that time, I was 38 years old and I really thought because of how long it was taking 
at any minute now he was going to come in and say look sorry this has gone on too long we need to you need to have a cesarean anyway at one point he realized that I was completely exhausted and he said you know what we're going to do we're going to put you to sleep and so because I was lying down they actually gave me uh, a sedative and knocked me out for a couple of hours and then when I came to uh, I was dilated and I think that was like only an hour or something before you were actually delivered and I woke up and he went right we're ready to go are you ready to push and I pushed and fucking pushed and pushed and still you wouldn't come out you were just having a lovely time in there you just didn't want to deal with the world I think so in the end uh he had to put on the rubber gloves and get the suction cap out and out you came at 16 6 15 p.m on the 12th of March 2002 and the first thing I did was called for a beer. I had worked really fucking hard to get you out. And uh, so, yeah, I had a cold beer in the bed in the delivery suite. And the anaesthetist said, he said, all the years I have been doing this job, he said, I have never seen a mother chug down a beer after giving birth. So, uh, yeah, so that was a pretty interesting, interesting thing. I was pretty exhausted after that ordeal. And uh, when finally, you know, I, I don't know, it must have been some 48 hours later, it felt like the first time I found myself really, truly alone with you. And you were in the little um, maternity ward um, bassinets on the trolleys that, that they give you. They're like clear. They're, it's basically a clear perspex box on a trolley. So I was lying in the bed and I could see you through the perspex. And I was looking at you and you were just settled there and lying there sleeping. And the enormity of not just what I'd done but also what I'd taken on and the exhaustion and the fatigue and the thrill and the elation and all of that sort of stuff just became too much to bear and I got myself out of bed and I dragged a chair up to your trolley and I just looked at you through the glass and I put my head on the perspex and looked at you and and I just wept. I wept from the exhaustion and I wept from the relief that you were that you were here and that you were healthy and that you were mine and that you were loved. And I I wept because I kind of I didn't know what to do. I felt so wholly unprepared for what I imagined was ahead of me being a mum and and I and I knew that I couldn't do a half-assed job I knew that I didn't want to fuck it up that I wasn't going to fuck it up but I wasn't sure I could do it 